Okay, so I'm going to start right here uh, at the end of verse, uh, the end of chapter um, 5. That's not the right passage at all. I mean, that's the right verse, but the title, this is actually Galatians 5, 26. So here we go. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So he's gone from other people are going to look at you and they're going to see all these fruits on your fruit tree um, and they're going to see what kind of person you are. And then he says, and when you hear that people are sort of noticing these things about you, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to sort of people looking up to you or people admiring you? Or, and this is the real struggle, right? Um, when you realize that you're on your way, that you're making it, that you are, you've, you've, you've shaken the flesh off, um, now there's this whole new area of the flesh called pride. I'm doing really good, and suddenly you're doing bad again, right? Um, and so he says, once, once you're bearing fruit and once you're, like, you're helpful and you're a part of the, the healing of the world around you, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So three words here. The first word, uh, conceited, let us not become conceited, is this word kenodoxos. Everyone say kenodoxos. All right. Kino is, is um, emptiness, nothingness, kino. Um, doxa means glory or praise. So you have the idea here of your, it's, it's a thing that for some reason you glory in and you praise as if it's really great, but there's nothing in it. It's empty. Empty praise. That's, that's how the scriptures talk about being conceited. Um, and there's lots of passages in Scripture that sort of speak to us about conceit, um, about when we stand and we brag about our accomplishments and the things that we're good at and our abilities and our talents, and we, we feel really, like, conceited about them. Um, like, they're things that oftentimes mean, oftentimes mean nothing. They're just emptiness, and we are praising ourselves for them. Okay, so... Um, Next up is this word provoking. It's this word prokaleo. 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 I'm a, you know what? We'll work on it. Okay, we'll get there. Um, prokaleo. Yeah, uh, oh, that's... Oh, man, look what I did. Okay. I, I messed up my, my slide. It's been a long week. All right. So I'm just going to tell you what this one means. So you got the word pro, if you're writing. Pro. Uh, it means before. Um, kaleo means... It's where we get our word call. So... The picture here is you're calling someone to stand before you um, so that you, because you are conceited. I've got it up here twice. You can see what it means. Um, you are conceited and you are sort of, you're judging yourself and you're taking glory and praise and all these things that, that you are really super proud of that are really emptiness and nothingness. And now you're calling someone else, hey, come here, stand before me and I'm going to call you out to show me what you've got, right? Because now... I, I can't, I'm not happy enough just glorying in myself. I need someone else to take part in this as well. So, uh, yeah, come over here, stand here, and bask in the glory of me. What do you have? Well, here's what I have. Bask in all that is me. So, that's what this word is. Um, it's, it's prokaleo. It's provoking. It's calling somebody out. Um, and the third word, yeah, oh, yes, this one's good. Um, envying is this word phthonos. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, phthonos is, first off, it's hard to say, phthonos. Second, um, it's, uh, it was one of the um, negative sort of, it's a, one of the fruits of the flesh. It was, it's, and it's a dangerous thing. Displeasure at someone else is good. It's that feeling when you see someone accomplish something and they attain something and they get something, they purchase something, 
they get a, some, the promotion or the husband or the whatever, you know. You see that, and your face is smiling. Yay, I'm so proud of you. But inside you are burning with anger. What about me? When do I get what I've been searching for? When do I get my thing? Where is mine? Um, this is what happens when you live by the flesh. And so um, it's displeasure at someone else's good. It's, it's the inability to rejoice with the blessing that someone else receives. When good things happen to people, good or bad, we rejoice with them. We, we always praise the blessings of God, however they come to whoever they come to. We praise them. We don't envy in them. We don't despise them for it. So, uh, for Thanos, displeasure someone else is good. So, you can see sort of what he's saying here. So, let's put this all together. Let us not become conceited, because when we do, we're, let, us not, let us not praise ourselves for the empty, empty things that, that we do, that we, for some reason, we put a lot of, um, a lot of you know, value on, empty value. And then, and let us not, when we do this, let us not provoke one another. Let us not say, oh, well, by the way, hey, come, look, look at what I've done, and then brag about our, our empty things. Um, and, then, and, then, and then let us not envy when good things happen to other people. Um, this is the fruits of pride. This is what happens. Um, so let's take a minute talk about um, currency. If you've ever studied the, the, the currency of, of, um, of different currencies of the world, you'll find that American currency is unique in several different ways. First off, it's really ugly. Um, it's, it's, it's made to look like this ancient relic, right? It's, um, and, and there's a reason for that. It's because um, uh, we have never changed our currency since the country was founded. Um, most other countries in the world change their currency every 100 years or so because some event happens and they merge with some other country, and the, the world's always changing, but our country just kind of stays the way it is since its conception. Uh, so we, we keep the same money, and, and it, this is really the only country in the world where you can take like a, like a, a quarter or a dime from, from 1870 and, and, and go to JCPenney and spend it as if it's a dime today. I would highly recommend you not do that because it's probably worth like three grand. But you could spend it for this face value of 10 cents, and legally they would have to receive it. That's, um, it's an interesting little quirk about us and our currency. Now, um, a lot of other currencies um, in the world um, are actually quite interesting. This is Australia. Um, so they're different sizes. If, you, if, you, if you've ever been to Europe, the euro, they're all different sizes as well, and you can see clearly, you know, it's easier to sort because um, the big ones are big and the small ones are small. Um, and it makes sense, and, if, um, and especially if, if you're, like, seeing impaired, like, it really helps. Um, our money discriminates against blind people. Um, but more on that later. No, I won't talk about that. Um, and so this is Australian money. They give it fun names, like this one over here is called the lobster. It's great. I love the Australians. Uh, two lobsters, please. And this one over here is called the piney. Five pineys and two lobsters. Um, and that's how they, they, that's probably a terrible Australian accent. But that's how they, how they describe their money. And their money is made out of like this plastic. Uh, it's, it's really, it'll, it'll last like 15, 20 years. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. And they've switched it up and they're highly praised. Um, and then we come back to ours. Now, if, if you ever read any critiques of like the looks of our, our, our money, um, all art critics will tell you we have like the ugliest money in existence. It, um, it has about 10 different fonts. You can see them. They're everywhere. Uh, no, there's no like 
like reason they should have all these different fonts. Um, they're all the same color. Um, they're all sort of made out of like this denim material, and we've never changed the colors. And so there's been a lot of movements to try to get people to change the color, change the look of the dollar, and, and people who are like aesthetically minded are like, hey, our money's super ugly. We should change it and make it beautiful because we can do this because we have like a bajillion designers here, and we're always on the forefront of like, of like design, and so we could make a beautiful dollar bill. You know why they don't? They don't because they've done, um, they've done some psychological studies, and they found that, that if we were to change the dollar bill into something else, it would bring to the surface and reveal something just below the surface that we refuse to sort of understand and affirm um, that this is actually worthless, that it's a piece of paper. And any worth that is ascribed to it, any worth that it has is only there because we collectively agree 10 is going to be worth $10. And a $10 is going to buy about this much money, going to buy about this much food or whatever. It's just an agreement that we make. It's not real. And they can't change the look of the money because it would sort of reveal and bring to the surface the fact that the thing that we all tend to ignore, that money actually has no value at all. None. It is kinodoxos. It is just paper. Um, and, And which is really interesting because it's simply this cultural construct. And, and these cultural constructs are everywhere. And we make things and we place value on the things that we just invented, things that didn't exist recently, and now they exist, and we place value on them. And the things of God are not these cultural constructs. Sometimes we make all kinds of cultural constructs and we apply them to the things of God. But the things of God are not culture. They are sort of this universal thing. But we invent all these things and we put all this weight upon them and then we stand on and, and boast about what we have when what we have is actually just a meaningless cultural construct that will not last forever. Right down to the neighborhoods in which we choose to live, we declare them, this is the, this is the, the trendy one, this is the up-and-coming one, this is the slum. We, we invent all these different neighborhoods, we declare what they are, and then we boast about where we live, even our countries. Countries are constructs. They're not real. They're agreements that we all make together, and then we boast about who we are, and we find our identity in that. The Christians have always been against that, well, historically. Um, when Paul says God's people should live by the Spirit, when Paul says living by the flesh is like two people um, with worthless trash comparing who's got the better trash, uh, he's touching on something that, that we desperately need to grasp, um, that human beings, that, well, okay, so that, that God, God creates divine things. The currency that God gives us I mean, think about the most meaningful things in life that we all declare are meaningful. Um, the birth of children, the gift of love, laughter, sex, um, passion, all of it. This, these are the gifts that God gives us. Um, empathy, mercy, compassion, grace. These are the things that God makes. These things have worth, have actual worth. These are the things we find living by the Spirit, and we take worth in these things. What do we make? So those are the things that God makes. What do we make? Like phones and cars and Yeezy shoes and, and we just stuff that we make. And we're like, yeah, check it out. Look what I made, and it's got so much worth. And the early Christians would look at it and say, you, you missed it. You totally missed it. Um. That. And, and then we look down on people because what we have and what they have are two different things. Um, 
Here, I'm going to drive my point home in, in the best way I know how, as far as this construct thing goes. This right here, maybe you've seen this. This is the world's most expensive potato chips. There is five of them in the box. They cost $55. Wow. This is where we are, all right? This is for sale right now for this holiday season. I just had to show somebody because I sat there at my desk like, no, am I? How is this not everywhere? Anyways, okay, next verse. Galatians 6.1. It's mind-blowing. It makes, it just, it kept me up at night one night. Um, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Okay, so, um, this is good. So, uh, we're going to start off here. Where are we at? Okay. So, we're going to start off here. Transgressions. If anyone is caught in transgression. Now, the word for transgression is paraptoma. So, para means beside. Pipto means fall. Um, the idea here, it's not someone who is purposely going out and doing horrible things. The idea here is, like, you're walking with somebody on a trail. Like, the early listeners would have, would have heard this. Two people walking down a trail, one slips and falls into the ditch. Um, walking up an icy road, and you slip and fall. It's this, it's not purposely uh, done. It's, it's a stumble. It's a fall. It's, you didn't want to, you never intended to, but you have committed a transgression. Um, this is what the, what the word transgression means. Now, um, so there's, there's this, and let's go a little farther here. Um, so, gentleness is the word we talked about last week. Proutess, the, the root of this, prous, refers again to the taming of a wild animal. So let's, let's look at this. Brothers, if any if one of you is caught in a transgression, if, if one of you slips and falls, you who are spiritual, let's pause right there. You who are spiritual, Who's that? That's us, followers of Jesus. We are living by the spiritual fruit. Those of you who are trying to live by the things of Christ, pay attention. If you're not, I want you to learn something about the followers of Christ, how they are really supposed to act. So if you're a skeptic and you're here this morning, I'm glad you're here. I want you to learn how this was intended to look. Because if people fall into transgression, into sin, as we say, uh, you who are spiritual should restore them with a spirit of gentleness the word gentleness being protest is really important because typically when people fall, what do we do? We, when people do something stupid and they fall into some kind of sin or temptation, we circle around them like lions eating prey and we destroy them. We, dis- we destroy their career, their family. We plaster their face all over the news. We write posts about them all over social media. We talk about them in anger and we absolutely destroy them. Because one of the funnest things to do is gossip about people's flaws. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Um, And this is what we do. But as followers of Christ, people who are trying to live by the Spirit, we don't do that. You are capable of doing that, but the word proud test, gentleness, means that you do not live up to the, the absolute violence that you are capable of as human beings. And so these things that you do when people are fallen, instead of walking up and just devouring them and kicking them while they're down, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore is the word catartizo. Uh, it, it's, it's a medical term for setting broken bones. You who are spiritual, you see somebody who has fallen. Instead of avoiding them, this is, this is identical to the, to the, the story of, of um, the, the, bad, uh, the Good Samaritan, right? Um, 
you see somebody fallen, and instead of kicking water down or running away or distancing yourselves from them, what Jesus would have us do and what Jesus did is move towards them, pick them up, do your best to put them back on their feet, and work towards their healing. This is what we have forgotten, especially in our nation, especially now. This is what we have neglected to see and neglected to do. We don't shoot our wounded. We nurse them back to health. And then Paul says in the verse, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What he's basically saying there is you pick people up and you you nurse them back to health because um, you're probably going to fall at some point too. I always watch when, um, like, especially spiritual leaders like pastors and stuff, when they fall into sin, I I try to pay attention and, and watch how their congregations treat them. Because I, I always kind of, in the back of my mind, my, my assumption is that, that the congregation is treating them exactly how he taught them to treat him. Like, we teach people how to treat um, those who are fallen on the outside. We love to judge. We love to talk about how horrible they are. And then the pastor falls and the people throw back to him exactly what he dished out, right? This is, this is the point, though. This is opposite. This is different. The point um, is restoration. You stand somebody back up, you work them back to healing. You don't kick them while they're down and, and feel better about yourself and distance yourself from them. There's a passage where Jesus is speaking, um, and, he's, and he's doing a teaching on how we judge people. And he says this. It's, it's a very famous saying in Matthew 7, 3. Uh, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in, in your own eye? You hypocrites. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, when Jesus said this, this would have been a really comical thing to say. I imagine the people standing around would have laughed because you have the, uh, the picture of like this guy with this giant beam sticking out of his eye, and he's like, you got something in your eye over there to somebody else. Um, and the question is, how could he even do that? Um, it's not saying, like, don't do that. It's saying that that's impossible. You, you can't, basically, if you have this giant pole sticking out of your eye, you can't get near to people to heal them. So there's a message, a little message here about your own health, your own spiritual health, and your own spiritual fruit, um, and how if you have all of these things wrong with you, you are incapable really of getting close enough to other people to help them. And so there's this idea of this beaming in your eye, and you can't get close enough to people to help them. You can't get there. And he says, first, you need to sort of get this out of your own eye. Um, If you're judging people, why don't you judge yourself first? And get that out of the way. Get, your, get a right view of yourself. And once you get that right view of yourself, you are capable of going up to others and helping them and being there, helping pick them back up and walk them out of it. Our next verse uh, in Galatians 6, 2-3. Uh, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So this takes us back, and this is why I hate the chapter break there. This takes us back up to chapter 5, verse 26. People standing around declaring that they are something when they have nothing to brag about, boasting about earthly things. Look at my car. Look at my house. Look at my stuff. Look at my company I built. Look at this. Look at that. Um, It's meaningless. Um, I I tend to have this response. So we were at, at, I think it was Chipotle or something not too long ago, and this lady walks up to me. I'm there with my family, and like, I think my family is the most beautiful thing in the world, and so I assume everyone else assumes that as well. Um, and and this, this, this lady walks up and is like, is that your wife? And I was like, yes. She's like, are those your kids? I'm like, yes. She goes, you have a beautiful family. I was like, you see? Thank you. 
And, and my response in my mind is like, yes, I'm like the richest man alive. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with anything. Like, riches is not this stupid agreement about a piece of paper and how much food it'll buy. Riches, the currency of the kingdom, the currency of God, is real relationship. And, and you, know, you, know how, you know how you measure success in, in the fleshly world? Um, how many people you employ, how much money you have, how big your bank account is. In the spirit realm, you measure success by how many people that you can look in the, eye, look in the eyes and, and they are looking back at you. Um, and, and there is this love that you have between each other. If you, if you can build up unconditional love between you and someone else, you are on the right track. If you can teach them to love you the way God does, and if you can love them the way God does, and, and the more you build, the richer you become, and the more these other things just kind of fall away. And so, we go to this next verse here. Verse 4, it says, uh, but, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. So the idea here um, is very simple. We are to compare ourselves not with the achievements of others, but instead we compare ourselves with what our best should have been. So there is a level at which you could live and you know you're not living at it. There is a health which you could be moving towards, but you're not moving towards it. And it's much harder to admit that than it is to look around and say, but I'm better than that person and that person and like these five people, I'm doing all right. But the fact is, instead of looking at them, you should put a mirror up in front of yourself and look back at yourself and say, but there's all these ways that I am failing. And then from that point, you look at Jesus and then it all becomes clear. First off, there's this perfection. There's this person who poured their life out, their actual literal life out for others, for you, but when you look in the eyes of Christ, what you see is love for you. And then you realize who you really are. You are this person who regularly fails, who loses their way, um, who has trouble with allegiance to the things of God, who has uh, maybe very little fruit there, but you are desperately and passionately loved by Christ. And that's where Christians find our identity. And then we look out to others. And this is how this works. Um, all of this, all of this is about having a bigger perspective. All of it. Most of us, um, our perspective doesn't include ourselves. Our perspective only includes all those we disagree with, um, we're really good at now with all this new technology. We build these echo chambers, right, where we block um, everyone who disagrees with us, and then we start to see um, how right we are more and more and more, and how incredibly right we are. And then one day we just come to the conclusion that we are perfectly right, and then we hear somebody else's perspective, and we cast them out. We say they're stupid, they're dumb, they're ill-informed. But I guarantee you, if you were in their echo chamber for the same amount of time that they've been in it, you would look at the world the way they do. You know what that is? That's idolatry. I was studying Acts 17 this week, and there's this part where, where Paul walks into the city, and the more he spends time in the city, he says he sees all the idols, and the more he sees the idols, um, the more he grows sort of perplexed and angry, and he starts seeing more and more idols, and he starts getting angrier and angrier. Um, and I, I sat and like meditated on that for a while and thought about that, and I said, well, why are there so many idols? So the ancient people weren't stupid. They didn't just, they didn't just make like a, 
a stone figure and then say, I'm going to put this thing up on the shelf and worship it, like for no reason. That wasn't them. They were just as smart as any of you are, and if you were to bring them today into this time and raise them in this day and age, they would have been the same. They had inquisitive, skeptical minds just like us. But the reason they made idols is different. The reason that they made idols is because they were afraid. They were afraid that their crops weren't going to grow, and so they would make these idols and say, well, like, I need whoever up there is in control of making it rain. Why aren't you making it rain? And so they make these idols, and then they sort of, this is, this is you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. All these things I'm going to lay out, all these sacrifices for you. I'm going to throw money at it. I'm going to burn incense. All this for you. Please make it rain. Um, why can't I have children? I'm going I'm to worship the goddess of fertility. Why can't, um, I don't want to die in childbirth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to worship this God over here who will protect me in that. Uh, and we have all these fears, and so we make all these idols. And we, we, while we don't make these figures today and worship them because we're enlightened people, we still do this every single day. We are terrified of the future, and so we make these idols, and we call them political parties. We, um, we say, oh, I'm, I'm afraid of, of others, and so we, we create borders and boundaries and all of these things that have nothing to do with God's world. These are human constructs, and we make them, and then we idolize them, and we say, this will give me protection. That was never supposed to be where you were supposed to get your protection. You were supposed to trust in God for that. That was never supposed to be the place where you would find your identity and your meaning, you were supposed to go to God for that. That was never the place where you were supposed to find out what life was about and to know, um, to feel loved. You're supposed to go to God for that. And so these other things are idols. You're making them because you're afraid that you're not going to feel loved. You're afraid of other people who are different and you're afraid of whatever. And so you make an idol and you worship it and you connect it with God and we are ruining this thing. This is how you, this is how you ruin your relationship with Christ. We don't hold dual citizenship. We are followers of Christ. We have faith, allegiance in Christ above all else. And so when people stumble and fall, we restore them. We don't kick them while they're down to destroy their worldview. We pick them up, we wrap our arms around them, we work for their healing. And we walk them as far as we possibly can towards the things of Jesus until they say, I can't go any farther. And they, go, they walk but we keep trying because we believe that grace, the gospel of Jesus is the salvation that we are looking for in this world, is the salvation that this world needs. We believe all that is broken can be healed because the resurrection is true. And so we're going to take communion. Uh, Maybe there is somebody, um, uh, you know, this week is Thanksgiving, right? Some contentious tables that some of you will be at. I know that. Uh, you've told me about it. Um, how about this? How about you spend some time, instead of talking about their flaws, maybe talk about some of yours. Confess some of the ways that you haven't been what you should have been. And ask for forgiveness. And watch people change. Watch them see you talk about your own ways that you want to be a better person. And then watch them step in and say, but I don't see you that way. And then suddenly all your petty differences and that all falls away when you realize that like, no, there is a real connection here that has to do with relationship and it's based on love, not human politics and currency and worldviews. The things of God will always transcend everything else. And so look into the eyes of people. Let them know that you care about them. Let them know how much you love them. Um, 
and that there is no reason to separate yourselves from them or to argue with them or put them down based upon temporal human constructs that we invent and we get conceited about and we take pride in and we boast about. So that's a little homework assignment challenge for you. We're going to take communion. Um, communion servers, you guys can come on forward. Communion is the symbol of, of Christianity. It is the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in the wine, and we eat it, and we say, God, thank you for what you did. Take your gospel down inside of me. Touch places that have yet to be touched. Make me more like you. Um, sanctify me. Cleanse me. Um, help me to bear fruit that is recognizably Christ-like. So let's pray. Father, thank you for what you do in our hearts and our lives. Thank you for how you're guiding us. Make us um, children of the resurrection. Make us people of reconciliation. Help us to see people when they're down and when everyone else is kicking them, when everyone else despises them. And even if we feel like we have every reason to despise them, we throw that aside and we rush in and we pick them up and we work towards their healing. Because that's exactly what you did for us on a cosmic level. You saw our pain. We were worth being devoured and abandoned. And you came charging in and, and slowly became like us, entered into our suffering, entered into our story, and showed us how this is done. Thank you. Lead us in that direction. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Take some time.